listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, listeners, welcome back to the show. You're listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show. I'm your host, Sterling Chapman, and today we have a guest, Frank Patalona from Cashflow Cleans. Frank, thanks for joining us. How are you doing this morning? Doing great. You know, everything going on with the markets and real estate, just out there every day hustling, you know? Yeah, yeah. So what Frank's talking about with the markets, we're recording this on March 18th. So hopefully by the time this episode airs, you'll know whether we're all right or we're all wrong, but hopefully we'll all have blown over by then in a few months. But Frank, would you go ahead and and just kind of tell us your backstory? Where'd you come from? How'd you get interested in real estate? What does your portfolio and, and real estate landscape look like today and everything in between? Sure. So when I was a kid, my uh, dad owned a couple properties, mostly single families, but he was, we'll say he wasn't that good at real estate. He was a little too easy to people and a lot of people burned him over the years. So he never really grew that much on that. And he wanted me to go out there and just get a regular job. He died when I was uh, in high school and I decided to become a school teacher. And uh, I was a teacher for 17 years, but the last 10 years of myself teaching I just decided to start buying some rentals, mostly triplexes and a lot of smaller stuff. And over time, still working and hustling a little bit, obviously, as well, we built a a small portfolio, mostly in the Rhode Island market. And over time, I decided, you know what, as we're getting near a, a top, it's like maybe I should sell off a few and maybe I should invest in other areas and just move my money around a little bit. So, uh, in the past year or so, I decided to spread some money into a few other markets and a few other states around the country. So I mostly invested uh, recently in syndications. I've done some as a limited partner and I've done one as a general partner. I still do all the different aspects of real estate. I still have smaller multis. I still have a few single families, done a little bit of new construction and I've done a little bit of hard money lending as well. You know, just everything. Jack of all trades, master of none. Absolutely. Yeah. It sounds like you're all over the place. So I've got several questions about each one of those areas. But first, my first question is, how were you able to make that jump? So I don't know how much school teachers get paid in Rhode Island, but you're in Louisiana that typically don't have a a whole lot of extra cash to go put down 20% on, on investment property. So what did that look like for you when you first became interested and and you were trying to break into the market? So my wife and I are both teachers, so that helped a little bit. And also I kept a part-time job throughout all my years of teaching just to uh, keep building that extra revenue. Many people said I should have left that part-time job, but I liked helping people in in that job as well. I don't know. I just, I just lucked out. We, one of the things I will say is as we increased our income, we did not increase our spending. You know, if you like books, The Millionaire Next Door was a good book for that kind of stuff. And uh, eventually, you just get to the point where you know you're going to put that money to work and you want that money to work harder than what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the unsexy part of investing that nobody likes to talk about is the saving, the not living the glamorous lifestyle, you know, so you can invest more in your future. So when you first got started, did you start with the single families or did you start with small multifamilies? Started with small multis. The first three that I bought were all just triplexes. I just like the concept of uh, cash flow and especially the concept that if you have one person that moves out, you still have two rents coming in to help offset that. So I'm, 
And I'm sorry that you were the one that I landed on with this, but every time the subject comes up, I think it's in my head. If you own three single family houses and one of them goes vacant, you still have the other two single. Is that not the same as having one? I mean, don't get me wrong. I totally agree with you. I, I, I have all small multifamilies as well. But every time that that reason comes up, I always think, is it is it not the same as having one vacancy in one single family house if you own three? So it's definitely similar. I would say that usually the purchase price compared to the rents are different. Okay. So thinking about a single family, you still have three lawns to mow. Usually on singles, we try to get the uh, tenants to mow them, but you're still ultimately responsible. You know, three roofs are a lot more expensive than one roof, stuff like that like the whole concept of the 1% rule. And it might depend on the market as well. Right now in our market, a triplex would go for around $300,000. And I could probably rent each unit for just about $1,000 each. So that makes that 1% rule. But a single family, we don't have many single families in our market that would be under, say, 150. And most of them are decent or around 200,000. But it's a lot harder to hit that 1% on those. And plus, in our area, the taxes, the taxes on a single family per unit, obviously, are a good amount higher than on a multifamily. Gotcha. And I wasn't trying to challenge you. Like I said, all of my properties, with the exception of two single families, are small multifamily. So I, I definitely am in line with it. I just... Sterling, you can I'm challenge just, me all you want. I'm uh, just trying to play <laughs> the devil's advocate because that yeah. particular argument never made sense to me. So just going with that, I mean, one of the things I say all the time is that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of right ways to do real estate, and there are a couple wrong ways as well. But just because you do it different than I do doesn't make it automatically wrong. There's different sure. strategies, and I mean, I've had one of my mentors come up to me about five or six years ago and told me that I was doing it all wrong and shoot me out for a while, and I was very upset by that. And then about three years later, he came back. He says, "You know what? Maybe you were doing it the right way." And it's, <laughs> Hey, I'm not saying that to be cocky. I'm saying that he has a good strategy and I had a good strategy and they were just different. I definitely did not grow as quickly as he did. But at other times when certain people blow up in a bad way, you know, slow and steady can sometimes win the race. Yeah. Can you give us an example of maybe a time that you did things the right way and then also an example of maybe something you did the wrong way? I mean, even if it wasn't your fault, basically, I'm just looking for like a a huge home run success story and then maybe something that didn't go go so well. Sure. So uh, success stories, probably about five years ago, I started to get a little bit into the single family game just because a lot of people, like you said, were buying up those smaller multis. And I still had the opportunity to buy a few singles, low price. So I bought two, three, four. I bought four single families at just under $100,000 each, which every market's a little different. But right now, we sold one of them recently for two sixty nine. dollars uh, Yeah, I mean, we did do some work to them. Okay. And been rented. I mean, they've been rented the whole time as well, though, too. Yeah. So, I mean, we might have put in... of rehab, but most of them are worth double, if not more, than what we paid for them, which is really nice. Uh, We've lucked out on those, definitely. So that's a success story. I mean, problems? Oh, shoot. I can name (laughs) a, a bunch of ways in which I've lost money. I talk about risk all the time and the concept that if you don't take some risks, then you're not working hard enough, you're not pushing hard enough. Sometimes you never know how far you're going to uh, excel if you don't take a few risks here or there. 
we had our commercial building, a small commercial building that was commercial for years and years from the time it was built, but zoning had changed around it. And legally, it was only a, it was only a, a single family piece of land. So after the last commercial tenant left, it traded hands one or two more times and it wasn't legally commercial anymore. But stupid me didn't really know that. So uh, <laughs> I had to uh, fight with the city and the neighbors were not happy with who I wanted to put in on the commercial side. So we ended up turning it into a single family house and I lost money on it. Oh yeah, I bet I bet that uh, cost a good bit to to turn that around. <laughs> Absolutely, and there was also times where you know you sometimes you might do a loan to a friend that hasn't worked out. You know, you think they have a decent business, but they're not hard enough workers, or just something happened where their business failed, and yeah, you had to eat that. But you know, taking risks here or there, there are plenty of ways that I've lost money. Got it. So, are you managing these properties yourself? I was until about. A year ago, I I gave up my last 15 units. I tried to keep, for the longest time, I kept about 15 units that I was managing myself. And then any of the newer stuff, I was passing on to other property managers. But those last 15 units, about just over a year ago, I gave away to have all professionally managed. And what has your experience been with that so far? So I like the concept of managing your own, especially so that you can understand both sides. Mm-hmm. You can understand the struggles of the tenants. You can understand how much the struggle is to deal with the tenants. And you know how long things just take time to get repairs done, no matter how many contractors you think you have to help you, everything else. But at the same point, I like the professional status in which you basically release the responsibility where the tenant doesn't see you as, as a connection or a friend or somebody they can like persuade in many ways. Oh, yeah. you know, it's like, Hey, listen, when you're a professional manager, it's a business, you know, so it's a completely different role and strategy. And at the same point, I mean, in my opinion, all property managers suck. They just suck differently. (laughs) I work just in my local market. I work with four different property managers and they all have their pros and their cons. You know, there's none that I really would say I hate, but I have dropped a few just because they're not in the same standards of what I'm looking for. And that's, that's really my question. Cause like conceptually, I love the idea. If I could just not deal with any of the tenants anymore, I mean, that would be great. I'm holding on and I shouldn't be, I should be letting it go because it's just completely eating my time alive. But I'm afraid that they won't hustle as much as I do. I'm afraid they won't have the sense of urgency to fill my units. I'm afraid they won't try and find the cheapest contractor to make repairs. I just feel like I'm going to be paying somebody to do a lousier job than me and and lose more of my money. And that whole concept is just hard for me to stomach. So, no, you're completely right. All of those are completely valid concerns. At the same point, as your portfolio begins to grow, you know that you cannot continually put 100% commitment in all of those properties. And you're going to have to eventually release some of that responsibility to someone that you are going to have faith in and know and trust. So uh, like I said, they all suck differently. I have one guy that charges higher rates, but I mean, his rehab costs are phenomenal. Right. You know, I have another guy whose rehab costs are way too much money. So sometimes I have to find a handyman or a contractor to do some of the work. But at the same point, their rates are really low for the management. Yeah. So, you know, see how it offsets sometimes. And there's no, there's no, think about it. If, if there was someone that was perfect, obviously they wouldn't have time to add more clients, right? 
Right. So how do you find your vacancy rates are affected turning it over to property management? I would say that my vacancy rates probably have not changed that much at all, to be honest with you. I mean, it depends on how hard you're working at it, but I will tell you that we have a couple of vacancies right now, but one or two is more my fault because I've thrown my guys other jobs instead. And what's the best way to put it? What's cool about the property manager, especially the one on that, on that property, is that he already has someone lined up and ready to go. We just need to finish the job on the, on the turn. Gotcha. You know, what's cool is that if you have a professional group that knows what they're doing and really has your best interests at heart, they're working at it just as much as you would. Awesome. So you're continuing to grow your local portfolio there in Rhode Island, and you also have taken an interest in apartment syndication, rather that be investing in other syndications or putting together deals yourself. So I like to hear that you've continued to keep both lanes open because oftentimes when I mentioned I was interested in apartment syndication, like, well, what you're doing is working out. Why don't you just keep doing that? I was like, well, why can't I do both? Yeah, so it does take a lot of time and effort to do both. But at the same point, for example, in our local market, I have not really bought anything buy and hold in the last year. But we're still looking and we have done a few fix and flips. I mean, we're doing a triplex right now that my partner and I are probably going to make 50000 each on the sale after the rehab, which is really awesome. And we got a great rate, low down payment. It worked out in so many ways. So we're still doing stuff locally. The last one we bought locally was a nine unit that we bought about 18 months ago. And we're keeping that long term. So can I ask why? I guess this is a, I have a bad habit of asking three questions at once, why you decided to turn a majority of your attention away from building your local portfolio that served you so well for so long into these syndications, what you look for when you're, when you're investing in other people's syndications and what your experience has been like putting together your own. So I feel like you've almost given me like a softball question there. Uh, (laughs) You have to realize that every market's different. So in Rhode Island, I would say that we are considered tax hell by CNBC, the worst place to start a business. And uh, since I had 98% of all my assets in Rhode Island real estate, I just had to spread some money out in other parts of the country. Usually we're first in recession and last out or one of. So even if I go to a different market, if I know I can get a decent deal, even if the market turns there, I'll be in the same boat as where I am now, but I feel that they'll recover quicker. Got it. You know, and the beauty of you know investing as a limited partner in other people's syndications is that they are usually a lot smarter in that market than I could ever be. You know, I cannot be in seven, eight, ten markets at once. So, how do you determine what markets to invest in or what operators to invest with? Good call. Besides my own GP deal on the LP side, I was just looking to be more location agnostic in which the location didn't matter as much. The operators, I I basically looked at quite a few deals. I probably looked at 40 deals before investing in four or five of them. And there's nothing wrong with looking at a ton of different deals. I mean, they're all out there and everybody's looking for money. So it's like, what's special about that deal? I will tell you that I am focused on not being in the hottest markets. I will not be in California right now. I would not be in Miami or Atlanta or even Dallas or Houston. And I know a lot of deals I see in Dallas and Houston, but I'm just looking at what the competition is. In my opinion, those markets are too hot. 
I like to be in the markets that are just below that, those second tier ones that are quiet and growing. You know, Kansas City, Oklahoma City, those kind of deals where there's opportunities, there's room for appreciation, and there's also room right now to cash flow. Awesome. Now, what about your your own deal? Tell us, can do you mind giving us sure. the details of that? My own deal was a 506C. We just closed on it recently. We actually didn't finish the raise. We raised enough to close on it, but we didn't raise enough to do all the rehab yet. It's a nice, growing, quiet market in southeastern Idaho called Pocatello. Yeah. And I know most people have never heard of Pocatello before, <laughs> but the FBI definitely has because they just built a $100 million data center right there. And it's also the home to Idaho State University. So there's a lot of potential. It's about two miles from uh, the university. So we're not necessarily getting college kids there, but the market is slowly growing in that neck of the woods. Plus it's two hours north of Salt Lake City, which is a very hot market right now as well. So things are spreading out in all different ways. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, definitely. Yes. I'm familiar with Pocatello from years ago when I lived in Coeur d'Alene, but I had never Oh, perfect. I'd never heard of it prior to that. Can you tell us a little bit more about the the capital raising? You mentioned it's, it was a 506C, which I always get it mixed up. That means you only accept accredited investors? Correct. So I think of B like the word buddy and C like the word community. Gotcha. B, uh, a 506B is like a buddy system. You can only take money from people that you have a substantial pre-existing condition with. Okay. You know? a relationship with already. When uh, a 506C is you can shout it from the rooftops, you can talk to anybody you want, but you can only get people that are accredited. And accredited, obviously, is anybody that has a net worth of over a million dollars, not counting their personal residence, or someone that makes $200,000 a year the past few years and expects to continue that if they're single. And if they're married, it's 300000 as a dollar amount. So how did you go about raising the money? Did you have confidence in prior commitments from personal relationships already? Did you just go out there and put together a PowerPoint and start putting commercials out saying, hey, invest in my deal and have a bunch of strangers? What exactly did that look like? Sure. It was a three-person general partnership. One person was involved in investor relations. Another person was more asset management. And I was brought in more to sign the note as the key partner since I had the net worth in order to sign the mortgage. I did do some raising. We, we did a webinar. But most of our money came from personal relationships. I mean, spreading it out there. Instagram was actually bigger than I thought. Now you have, you have over 10,000 followers on Instagram. That was going to be my next topic I wanted to dive into was tell me about everything else you've been doing with your Cashflow Kings having 10,000 Instagram followers and you guys do training and coaching. So you've really built it into so much more. And I just, I want to know the details of A, how you did that because I personally went and set up a Rent Roll Radio Instagram website after you told me to in Keystone a few weeks ago, and I think I'm up to 102 followers. <laughs> so, so I want the how and the why. By the way, we are following you. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. So we actually, it's all about networking connections. We post on Instagram every single day for the cash flow kings. And after this webinar, I can actually look at your last couple posts and give you a few pointers. Yeah. Stuff like that. 
But um, it's all about the daily hustle. So the raising money was definitely a grind. Every day we're posting something. I was posting something, whether it's on Facebook about the deal or having some kind of live video. Like I said, I had two partners that might put a live video out, stuff like that. It's crazy just to raise a small amount of money. You know, just it's hard to do. People have a hard time parting with their money, just like you should too, you know. But if you start to trust the operators and build relationships over time, all three of the investors that I brought with me outside of what they raised, they all knew me from the local networking, but they met me on Instagram first. And then I met them at a networking event. Awesome. So my, my next question was going to be why, and I, this beats, I mean, in my daily grind, a lot of things beat me up. Why am I doing this? Why am I always doing that? Is this worth the time and energy? So my question was going to be why with the social media and why with the constant posting, but it sounds like you've already answered that. Like it, it contributed a tremendous amount to a, you meeting your partners, B you raising the capital needed to fund your deals and what other ways is it helping your, your business? Yeah, so with social media, without social media, there's so many things that would not have happened to me in the past year or two, okay? With social media, the two partners that I have in the Idaho deal, I found them through social media, okay? Besides the Cashflow Kings brand, we also have a virtual assistant company called Real Agent Helper. And my Real Agent Helper company actually was at an event in Colorado last fall at the Adam Adams event, Raising Money Summit. Mm -hmm. And what happened was, is that the people that were the general partners on this deal saw my company there. And it's a small company, but saw it, looked me up online, saw me on LinkedIn, saw me on BiggerPockets, saw me on Facebook, saw me all over social media and contacted me. And that's how you build relationships. Okay. It's, I mean, we, we even have a TikTok for the Cashflow Kings. We don't post it on there much, but you know, Social media is where it's at right now. I mean, whether you like it or not, it's a way to get out there and it's a way to have content. And the content is out there for a long time after you post it. People can go back and see it. If you keep producing good content, then people say, wow, this guy knows what he's talking about. So on Facebook, maybe about two weeks ago, I posted this long thing about wholesalers, giving wholesalers a free I saw it. I saw it. I liked it. <laughs> I bet they didn't all appreciate that. They, they did not. It, but it was it was just my frustration about what is really a wholesaler and how can you try to wholesale me a deal that I already knew about and you're trying to sell it to me at a higher price. I mean, I could have bought it that day. It was on MLS. I passed on it at the regular price. Then you offered to me for $5,000 more. It doesn't work. You know, I, especially if I know my markets. It's just not a deal and stop wasting my time. And I'm trying to help them actually, because if I can train them, show me better deals, then they will be able to make more money and get better deals themselves as well. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit more about your virtual assistant business. It's called My Agent Helper. Called Real Agent Helper. Real Agent Helper. And what, what do they do exactly? And, and how have you used them in your business? And how might I use them in mine? Sure. So I'll tell you what most, most of our clients use real agent helpers for. Basically, virtual assistants, most of ours are out of the Philippines. What they do is that the cost of living is a lot lower in the Philippines. So we can hire people and we usually hire people at above average rates for where they are. And then we basically set it up so that they can work for you on things that you don't have time or don't want to do. So we have a property management company locally that uses one of our virtual assistants for 
9 a.m. to 5 p.m. phone calls. They take all the phone call reception. We have other agents that work on social media that do all the social media for some of the real estate people that you actually know. I can mention a few names. So we usually don't like to promote our clients because then some people like to try to take them away from us, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah we have other ones. So there's a girl that I know that she's a full-time property manager for another company, but she has her own uh, wholesaling and flipping business. And what she did is that she can't answer calls during the day. So we set up one of our virtual assistants to answer all of her phone calls. We set up a private phone number that basically she plasters anywhere. She can plaster it on yard sign. She can have it on our website. He answers all the calls from nine to five and he does all of her social media and everything else. It's pretty cool. And it's less than the price of minimum wage because we're getting the people from a different part of the world. Well, that's, that's certainly something that I would look into because all of the things you just mentioned are the things that eat up all of my free time. So we have another guy that all he does is use his virtual assistant for email and for calendar management. So like, say you have like, I know I have like 10,000 emails in my main email address and I could just have one of my virtual assistants just go and clean that up. But usually I get them busy doing other things. Nice. So let's, and thanks for everything you shared. And, and, and I, I look forward to continue to getting advice from you on that. Cause it obviously you've, you've done it great. But let's switch gears a little bit because I want some of your feedback, thoughts, predictions about what's going on in the world today. Like I mentioned, by the time this airs, we'll know if you're right or you're wrong. I was, <laughs> I was, I was interviewing Scott Trench the other day and he, oh, said, yeah. he said, well, this is because when is this going to air? I was like, dude, like two months. He goes, well, everybody will know if I'm wrong or if I'm right by then. But Obviously, we're, we're in the thrall of just the economic crisis, a nationwide crisis with coronavirus. As an investor, as a landlord, as an American citizen, what do you think the implementations of this are going to be? You know, one thing that kind of freaks most people out is, is how the stock market's performing. How do you think that's going to correlate to the real estate market? My main question for the day is, they put a halt on evictions. So I really just wonder, what would you do to prevent the tenants from taking advantage of that? So, you know, I could pay my mortgages a few months while my tenants didn't pay rent, or a few of them, you know. But I'm afraid that once they hear that, they're just going, all bets are off, go out, we don't have to pay rent, go, you know, go party with your money. So, like, how would you curtail that? And, and let's, I want to hear everything you got to say on the subject. Sure. So I will say that I'm not necessarily a good predictor of future events. I definitely do not have a crystal ball. But we all know that we were at a market top for real estate. Okay. That's why I have not bought anything buy and hold in the last year. Okay. Everything that I've been buying, if I'm, besides the syndication stuff, but it's just in my own local market, I've been doing a few fix and flips and stuff like that. So I put some money into the stock market today. We'll see if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'll dollar cost average on the way down. We still live in the uh, greatest, most powerful economy in the world that the world has ever known. You know, think about it. Will we have a hiccup? Absolutely. May we hit recession? I'm predicting we will be in recession three months from now. Okay. I mean, they have, we have everything closed up around here. Schools, they just said are going to get closed for at least another week and probably longer than that. Trump was on live TV the other day and said, when will this all be over? And he said, oh, I don't know, maybe August. <laughs> so, I mean, it's coming. And what you have to do is just have to, I'll even show you what I'm reading right now. I'm reading the cheapskate next door, just in case, you know, might as well. 
we're still out there looking, making an offer today. I was talking to uh, two hard money people today and one of my attorneys. We have all of our recording of deeds and stuff actually closed up as of yesterday. And we're still looking ways to um, make those recordings happen. We have one thing pending to sell right now. We have another thing impending that we have a hard money loan on that looks to close in about a month and a half. We're still out there doing deals each and every day. And that's the main thing you need to do. And you need to just be mindful that it's okay to make a low offer. I'm not saying to make an offer at 10% of the, of the asking price, but it, there's nothing wrong with being 25% below what they were asking right now. Okay. What's the worst they're going to tell you? No. Everybody's fearful. Okay. There's a quote from Warren Buffett, right? What does he say about being greedy? Be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. Yeah. So I was fearful three weeks ago. Okay. Because the market was just too hot. That's why you'd pass on 99% of the deals that are out there. But right now there's nothing wrong with looking. There's nothing wrong with being fearful. I'm a little fearful right now as well, but I'm still going to price that into my office. Now, we have a local property that is for sale right now. At, I won't even give you the exact number, but it's between three fifty and 400000 And we're putting an offer around two eighty today. Oh, wow. It's okay if they turn me down. We'll see if, this, if it's still available two months from now. I don't need to rush. Now, you guys don't need to rush. We're in a long-term real estate game. Are you an agent? Absolutely not. Now, how does your agent like you putting in all these low-ball offers? She uh, is an investor agent, and uh, I don't need to go with an agent if I don't need to, but she's the one that brought me this deal, and she's fine with it. Okay. She knows the property needs a little bit of work. Think about it this way. If they're not fine with it, you need to find a new agent. Yeah. And besides, I give her plenty of work. I let her sell one of my single families last month, and she sold it for above the asking price. We had four offers in four days, so you know, it doesn't matter. That means you didn't ask enough. <laughs> Maybe, but... Uh, <laughs> We still made over $100,000 profit, so we'll keep moving on. Awesome. Awesome. So what about, what advice do you have or suggestions do you have for those landlords that might not be getting their rent checks in? All right. So you just need the tenants to understand that, that you are using the money that they pay to help feed your kids. Okay. And, you know, you have bills to pay. They have bills to pay. We don't know how this is all going to work out. And even if they can't pay the full amount of rent, they should still be trying to put in something Mm. to show that they care. It doesn't matter. I'm not saying you can't kick them out anyway, even if you want to. You just have to keep a a positive pro-relationship with your tenants. Know that you're going to be tracking how much they owe. Expect for them to pay it back when they can. Just keep moving on. You know, you should always have reserves anyway. So this is where those reserves actually get tested. The biggest problem that we've had in real estate in the last year is that people were making offers with zero risk in mind, with 100% vacancy. And that's just ridiculous. Okay. And that's why we didn't get a lot of properties in the last year, because we always figured in 10% vacancy. We always figured in what happens if this lets go and what happens if that lets go. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So what advice do you have for any of our listeners that are out there completely separate from this economic craziness that's going on right now? Just any real estate and potential real estate investor out there, somebody who might still be a school teacher, somebody who might you know, still be an engineer, and they're on the fence on whether to get started or not, what advice would you give them? Sure. So number one, everybody needs a place to live. Okay. 
So there's nothing wrong with going out there. If you don't own a property right now, your first property should be a house hack where you buy a smaller multifamily. You live in one of the units and you rent together too. You always buy with conservative estimates. Do not break your own rules, okay? If you know that you're going to have at least one month of vacancy over the course of a year, you need to figure that into the price. If not, you can get burned on the end, just like we're going to have some people burn in the next six months around here. But still, I mean, you have to do something with your time and your money. If you're working a regular job, you can either invest in real estate, you can invest in stocks, you can invest in gold, some kind of precious metal. What are you going to do, invest in artwork? I mean, you can, but you really need to become a big expert on that. And just like gold, I mean, what are you going to do, dig holes in your backyard and just stick them there? Real estate is still one of those areas of the economy where you can even screw up a little bit once in a while and you can still get lucky enough to do well. Absolutely. So just to finish things out, I, I got our radio round where I just asked three questions to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. The first one is, what's your favorite book? So my favorite book is uh, The Cashflow Quadrant by uh, Robert Kiyosaki. It's, uh, he has a whole series of books. Rich Dad, Poor Dad would be the main one. I say The Cashflow Quadrant because it was the first one that I ever read. And it basically separates people into four different categories. Either you're a regular employee or you're self-employed or you're a big business owner or you're an investor. And there's nothing wrong with being any of those four, but the people that really make a lot of money in this world are either big business owners or more importantly, investors. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. And I'm glad you went with cash flow quadrant instead of rich dad, poor dad, like 14 other people. Well, we are the cash flow <laughs> king, so you know. <laughs> So next question is, what's your favorite quote? So when I was a teacher, I had kids write down quotes every quarter. And the biggest quote that I always gave people was, give a man a fish and he can eat for a day, but teach a man to fish and he can eat for a lifetime. Okay, so I stand by that quote even today, even in real estate, no matter what. I mean, I'm not the handiest person to fix things, stuff like that. I can pay people to do it, but if you can learn how to do a few things on the side that'll help you out along the way, there's nothing wrong with that either. I teach my, I have three kids at home and I teach all three of them to be good with money. They all have stock accounts. They all have bank accounts and the oldest one is 13. They close the libraries on Saturday and before they close the libraries, we all grab backpacks and they fill the backpacks with books. I saw you posting on social media with all y'all's books. Yeah, Katie had 15 books in her backpack. So, you know. Awesome. So, readers are readers, right? That's readers right. are readers. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously quite a, uh, oh, quite yeah. a reader. What's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Oof. I'm a little bit of an online gamer. Okay. I play a, a couple of games online, League so of the, Legends, stuff so like the, that. The quarantine hasn't put you out much then. Oh, no, no. I mean, I went, so we went for a five mile bike ride yesterday. Oh, cool. I took the kids, uh, we stopped down at the post office, see if I had any uh, mailbox money. You know what I mean? (laughs) Then we took a ride on the bike path and then I stopped at the bank, made some deposits and I made them stand sit outside. They're like, can we come in? I said, guys, I said, let's be a little careful right now. I said, I'll go in. You guys might not go in another building for the next month. We'll see, you know? So in South Louisiana, leaving the kids outside would be the not-so-careful decision. (laughs) (laughs) 
I imagine Rhode Island is as picture perfect as it was in me, myself, and Irene, which is where I've learned everything I know about Rhode Island. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, there's bad parts and good parts of every state. I live in a nice, small community. And yeah, I have three kids. The oldest is 13, and the three of them can sit outside and sit on their bikes for five minutes outside of the bank. I'm not too worried about it. Awesome. Well, Frank, thank you so much for joining us today. I learned a ton. And I knew I would, and I know our listeners will too. Where can our listeners find out more about you? How can they find you on Instagram and all the other places that, that you're out there promoting Cashflow Kings? And how can they learn more from you? Sure. So the main thing is near of our podcast is The Cashflow Kings, just to make sure everybody has it, because there's actually a couple other competing things out there like it. So if you type in The Cashflow Kings, you'll find us almost anywhere on social media. We have a nice little green symbol that looks like uh, has like a dollar signs in it and like a crown for the Kings and a shield. It's pretty cool. Our, our little logo. And mm-hmm. then uh, besides that, if you just look up Frank Patalano, P-A-T-A-L-A-N-O, you can find me on almost all types of social media. Let's see if you want an email address. The best way to get in contact with me would be Frank at R-I-B-U-Y.com because I buy in Rhode Island. R-I-B-U-Y.com. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Frank. Talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at rentrollradio.com or sterling at crestwordcapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. <laughs>